0: Today, I'm again speaking with Spencer Greenberg, who was last on the show back in 2018. Spencer is still an entrepreneur, and he founded Sparkwave, an organization that conducts research on psychology and that builds software products with a psychology focus. Experimental evidence on how to actually go to the
1: gym more often. One study I think that really makes it clear how hard behavior change is, is this really huge study that was run fairly recently where I think it was on tens of thousands of people that were gym members. They tried to get them to go to the gym more often. Yes, I, I saw you, uh, you tweeted about this study, right? Yeah, I, I wrote a long tweet thread about it that went kind of semi-viral. The original paper is called Mega Studies Improve the Impact of Applied Behavioral Science. And the basic idea is they got tons of researchers, I think it was like 30 different scientists working in small teams to develop behavior change interventions. And then they took these tens of thousands of people, it was like I 60, was 61,000 participants who already had gym memberships, and used these text message interventions, 53 different interventions that the scientists developed to try to get them to go to the gym more often. So here are the ones I thought were, were more promising, more interesting. One is giving people bonuses after they mess up. So the basic idea is if you fail to go to the gym when you, when you wanted to, You'll be told you're going to get a special bonus if you recover from this mistake. So the next day, if you go at the time you planned, you'll get extra points. And I think this one probably is not a false positive because actually in the top five, this occurred twice. There were two slight variations on it, and they both were in the top five. So that seems really promising to me. Mm. Okay. How can people apply that in their normal life? I suppose it's you have this
0: issue of like falling off the wagon that a lot of people have when they're trying to change their habits. And I suppose you need to have an extra reward for yourself if you miss a day and then you manage to get back on the, the next day. That that That's maybe like an intervention point where you're particularly able to, to, to make a difference by geeing yourself up.
1: Right. And I think the key is to think about a failure as... Not, okay, now I'm screwed up and now it's not even worth it. It's like, no, 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 wait, now I can recover and I should be like, feel really happy if I like am able to recover. Because think about doing a habit, you're going to have failure days, like inevitably. If you can't recover, then you're pretty screwed. So I I just think that that's just a reminder that the recovery piece is as important as the, you know, doing the habit in the first place. So the other one is really quite interesting they gave people a choice of a gain frame and a loss frame for the points they earned. So the idea is when you go to the gym successfully, the time you planned, you earn points, right? So that's a gain frame. But you can equivalently think of it as you start with all the points. And every time you don't go to the gym, you lose points. And this intervention, they actually let people choose. They said, do you want to have this many points at the beginning? And every time you don't go, you lose them. Or you want to have zero points at the beginning every time you go you get them and of course it's the same number of points either way but by letting people choose they found people actually seem to go to the gym more often and we don't know for sure it's not a false positive but I think it's kind of cute and if it actually works that's pretty cool The
0: Factors That Predict Success
1: there are all of these folk theories
0: uh, about you know what determines success, which I usually I, I suppose highlight you know one particular thing. You know, it's just uh, you know grit. Uh, it's about your ability to stick to it. It's just luck, or it's just intelligence, or something. And you've kind of said, oh, I want to build a more complicated mathematical model with lots of different factors, and they're going to be multiplied, and there's going to and they're going to have powers. So, so mathematically, it's very good, and it can encompass uh, a lot of different conclusions. But I suppose it does leave I mean, p- people are reaching, I think, for these simpler folk theories because they want uh, to know empirically like which of these factors actually is the most important in determining success. Do you know of uh, any evidence that can help to kind of define these parameters in your model and help people narrow down what's most important?
1: Yeah so what's really tough if if you're looking at really high levels of success it's hard to get good sample sizes right because like You know, yeah, you can kind of make a collection of like, who are some of the most successful people in history, but then you're kind of just anecdotally like investigating each of them and you can try to make a model. It's just a tough thing to do. On the other hand, if we're thinking about more like ordinary levels of success, like being good at your job and, and, you know, marrying someone you like and so on, it's a lot easier to get data sets. So I think more is known about that kind of success. And if we think about that literature, things that come up a lot, like in the work context are... Uh, conscientiousness for a, a wide range of, of work, but not all types of work, but for many different types of jobs, you don't want to be too low in conscientiousness. Um, there could be diminishing returns. I think that's an open question. Like, do you really want to be 99.9999 percentile of conscientiousness, or is that too much? I sort of suspect that at some point, it actually becomes dysfunctional, but at least up until a point, it does seem like it tends to predict job performance. IQ generally uh, predicts job performance across very wide range of jobs. So that's a helpful one. Then Spending time training at a particular skill that's relevant for that job clearly is really important. But the type of training matters tremendously. So like just the number of hours someone has spent doing a thing is much less good predictor. The number of hours they spent with high quality feedback. And so if you think about someone who like just plays chess every day, yes, they're gonna get better at chess, but compare that to someone who plays chess every day, and at the end of the day, they break down. What they did badly, what the best chess engine said they should have done instead, compare it to what they did, try to figure out why it said that. Even if they end up, like, you control for the amount of time they spend, the second type is going to become vastly better at chess. Four improvements in social science research.
0: What do you think the state of play is these days regarding, I guess, this sort of social science reform movement?
1: Yeah, it is kind of uh, depressing reading papers from the 70s and be like, well, yep, they're pointing out all the things that need to be fixed.
0: <laughs> um, I guess we didn't do anything about that
1: at the time, and now the chickens have come home to roost. Yeah, no, I, I think we still have a long way to go to make science better, a very long way to go. However, I do think there are glimmers of hope. So one thing I'm seeing, and this is just kind of anecdotally, is I see more data being shared. I see more researchers being like, here's my data, go check it out. And and also more material sharing as well. Like here are the materials I used for the study. The open science framework has been a really positive force where they really are encouraging people to share their materials in an open way. It's kind of a nice platform for helping you do that. So that's really cool. I think there's more replications happening, way more replication projects where people are going and trying to replicate results. So that's really great. There's also this idea of registered reports. Uh, Chris Chambers has really been an advocate for this, and they're quite an amazing idea where basically they get journals to agree to accept a paper before the study has been run. So basically, they, the, the journal knows exactly what the, the study is going to be, but they don't yet know the results, nor do the researchers. The journal agrees to accept it, and then the research team goes and runs the study, and it gets published, regardless of whether it's positive or negative result. And this is really nice because it reduces the incentive to p-hack your results just to show some cool result, because your papers is already going to get published either way, right? So, so that's really nice. And um, and yeah, and I would just say just generally more awareness, like the increased skepticism is probably helpful because it means people know they're going to be scrutinized a bit more for the research methods.
0: The biggest barriers to better social science research...
1: I think currently something like 40% of papers in top social science journals don't replicate, but it's pretty dependent on what field it is. And I think we should, I mean, I think ideally we should get that down to something like 15%, not replicators, you know, something, you're never going to get to zero because there's going to be, there's always kind of things that could happen. It could be just bad luck or weird chance or stuff like that. But I think, I think it's just significantly too high a replication failure rate. And the basic answer is that it's an incentive problem fundamentally. But I think there's, you know, that is sort of like the super high-level answer. But there's like interesting things to unpack there about, well, what would it mean to make better incentives? But at the end of the day, if you're a social scientist in academia, you need to get publications in top journals in order to stay in the field and to get those tenure track roles and eventually to get tenure. And if you can't get published in the top journals, you basically will get squeezed out. So there's kind of a double incentive whammy here. One is that, If you're kind of doing fishy methods, you might have a competitive advantage over people who are really playing fairly, right? Because maybe the fishy methods let you publish more often. So that's really, really bad. And the second thing is those, uh, eventually, you're going to end up with a field that's gets filled with the people that are doing the fishy methods and then that becomes a norm, right? It's like if you see other people doing fishy things and you're like, I guess that's how research is done, then that's obviously going to have a negative effect on the whole field. And so one thing that's really great about the kind of open science movement is by pushing back against these norms, it's like trying to create a new set of norms, a better set of norms.
0: Importance
1: hacking. Are there any issues with science practice
0: that are are a big deal that you think uh, you know listeners to the show might not have heard so much about or might not appreciate how important they are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think uh, one really big one that I think actually might be on the same order of magnitude as p-hacking in terms of how important it is, but is really not well known. It doesn't really have a standardized name. Is something we call importance hacking. You can get your result in a top journal by tricking the reviewers into thinking that it was a valuable or interesting finding when in fact it was essentially a valueless or completely uninteresting finding. One example that comes to mind is this paper, Testing Theories of American Politics, Elites, Interest Groups, and Average Citizens. And so the basic idea of the paper was they're trying to see what actually predicts what ends up happening in society, what policies get passed. Is it the view of the elites? Is it the view of interest groups? Or is it the view of what average citizens want? And they have a kind of shocking conclusion that really. So here are the here are the coefficients that they report. Preference of average citizens, how much do they matter, 0.03. Preference of economic elites, 0.76. Oh my gosh, that's like so much bigger, right? Alignment of interest groups. These are these are like what the interest groups think, 0.56. So almost as strong as the economic elites. So it's like kind of a shocking result. It's like oh my gosh, like society is just determined by you know what economic elites and interest groups think, and not at all by average citizens, right?
0: I remember this paper super well because it was covered like wall to wall in the media at some point. And I remember, you know, it was all over Reddit and and Hacker News. It was a a bit of a sensation.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this often happens to me when I'm reading papers. I'm like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. And then I come to like a table in Appendix 7 or whatever. I'm like, what the hell? And So (laughs) so in this case, the particular line that that really throws me for a loop is the R squared number. So the R R squared measures the percentage of variance that's explained by the model. So this is a model where they're trying to predict what policies get passed using the preferences of average citizens, economic elites, and interest groups. Take it all together into one model. Drum roll. What's the R squared? <laughs> 0.07. They're able to explain 7% of the variance of what happens using this information.
0: Okay, so they were trying to explain what policies got passed, and they had, you know, uh, opinion polls for elites, for for interest groups, and for ordinary people, and they could only explain 7% of the variation in what policies got up. (laughs) Just, like, negligible.
1: So my takeaway is, like, they failed to explain why policies get passed. That's the result. (laughs) Like, we have no idea why policies are getting passed, right? Identifying p-hackers. Are there any, like,
0: uh, techniques for tackling p-hacking that uh, that I might not have heard about?
1: Well, one that I just think is really cool is this technique developed by uh, Simonson, Nelson, and Simmons. And it's called a p-curve analysis. And so the basic idea is you take a bunch of p-values that a researcher has published, either from one paper or from, like, a bunch of their papers, and think about it as you're making a histogram of all the p-values they found that were less than 0.05. So you're kind of looking at the distribution of how often did they get different values? How often did they get ones between 0.04 and 0.05? How often did they get ones between 0.03 and 0.04, right? And then we can think about what we should expect to see. So in a world where all of their results are false, but they don't do any sketchy methods, like it just happens that everything they study doesn't exist, we should expect a uniform distribution. Every p-value is equally likely. And that's just sort of the nature, based on the definition of a p-value, that if there is no effects, you expect it to be uniformly distributed, right, flat. And for um, p-curves, they just look at the values less than 0.05. So in that case, so the histogram we're talking about here would just be uniformly distributed between 0 and 0.05. Okay, what if they lived in a world where they were doing everything cleanly, they weren't using p-hacking, but some of their effects were real? How would that change the distribution? Well, if some of the effects are real, real effects are going to tend to have low p-values, lower than chance. And so what you're going to get is you're going to get a bump on the left side of that histogram, right? Around 0.01 or 0.02, you're going to see a bulge more results than that flat uniform distribution. So if you have a shape like that, that indicates that they are finding real effects that are not p-hacked. Mm, okay. Right. So then what if they're in a situation where they're just p-hacking the heck out of the results and mostly they're false positives that they're publishing? Well, now, you know, if you think about what p-hacking is doing is it's, Getting some results, many of which are are greater than P equals 0.05, so you can't really publish them in most journals. And then you're either doing like fishy things to get the p-value down, or you're just like throwing away the ones that happen to be just above 0.05, and then you're keeping the ones that happen to fall below it. And so what you get is a bulge, uh, like too many results on the right of the distribution, right, right around 0.05. And so that means if you have a bulge on the left, you're probably finding a bunch of real effects. If you have a bulge on the right, you're probably finding a bunch of false effects.
0: Wow. Okay. Interesting. So people, like I guess they'll find a particular researcher or find, I guess, some particular research topic or a whole bunch of papers on some general theme and then grab all the p-values and then see what distribution they have, whether the bulge is towards zero or the bulge is towards 0.05. And then they can say, like, does this literature as a whole have this problem order or does it not?
1: Exactly, exactly. And you could do it on all the, like, primary results of one researcher. You could do it on major results from a whole field. You could even do it, potentially, if there's one paper that had, like, seven studies in it, you could even, and they had a bunch of p-values per study, you could even try to do that. Um, But there are some caveats. I mean, this is far from a perfect technique, but it's, like, I think a really innovative idea.
0: If if there were people doing this on the the regular, then... If you apply this to a specific researcher over the course of their entire career, uh, and then they know that they can't end up with this shape that has a bulge towards the 0.05 side, then that would be really, I mean, it would be chastening, I suppose, for them because it limits what they can do, over, even though you can't tell which specific papers have real results and which ones don't. Uh, it places far more constraints on what they can publish you know, within their entire body of work.
1: Yeah, I think if there was some kind of really strong norm where, like, everyone had these curves published and everyone checked each other's curves regularly, it could create an incentive like that.
0: When to go with your gut. Something you've written on on decision making that I uh, really loved because, frankly, it's exactly what I think about the topic uh, is the fire framework for figuring out when you should use intuitive thinking versus deliberative thinking. Yeah, there's four situations that you highlighted when uh, you think that it's good to go with your gut. What's the first one?
1: Yeah, so the fire framework is all about like, yeah, when should you go with your gut? And basically, what I claim is that in these four cases usually you should just go with your gut. It's not worth like going into deep reflection. So the first case is for fast decisions. So the F in fire stands for fast. So imagine that you're driving down the highway and suddenly a car going the wrong way in your lane, like is like careening towards you, right? You don't have time for reflection. You just, you got to decide, you're going to the left, you going to the right, what are you doing? And just act, right? So the fast decision, you got to go with your gut.
0: Makes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What's, what's the second?
1: So second is the I in FIRE stands for irrelevant decisions. This is just very low stakes decisions that really don't matter where, you know, using your reflection is probably just not worth the investment of your, you know, conscious mind, just spending your time thinking about something more important. So this would be like, you're at the salad place, you're trying to decide, do I get carrots in my salad? It's like, does it really matter? Just like if your gut tells you to get carrots, get carrots. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. What's the, what's the R? Yeah. So the R stands for repetitious decisions. So think about someone who's a chess master who's played you know, thousands of games of chess with feedback on how they did. That person is going to develop an incredible intuition for what is a good chess move. It doesn't mean that they can't spend the time thinking about it, but it means that they don't necessarily have to. And so you know, um, there's this amazing example of Magnus Carlsen playing chess against three people who are like pretty good. They're not like you know top top people in the world, but three people are pretty good and he, he only gets a few seconds per move. So he like really doesn't even have time to reflect, and he beats them all. But the craziest part is he's blindfolded. So he has to keep all three boards in his mind simultaneously and make each move within a few seconds. Like Think about how ridiculous that is. So at some point, you've done something enough that you, your intuition is just built up. And I think really the key here is intuition is not magic. Like, Sometimes people treat intuition as magic. Yeah, your, your gut knows all these things. No, your intuition has to learn, right? So if you're in an environment where you've done a type of decision many times and really key thing, you've gotten feedback. So your intuition was able to update, then you can often trust your gut. That, that makes sense. What's the, what's the E? So the E is for evolutionary decisions. And so this is, there are certain things that are hard coded in animals and people being animals, you know, they're hard coded in us and they're they're not always right but they're pretty good heuristics. Like if you are looking at a piece of food and it smells horrible, like just don't eat it. It's just not worth it. It It might make you really sick, right? If you hear a really loud noise suddenly unexpectedly, yeah like probably you should try to get away because you know maybe it's just like a balloon popping but maybe it's like an explosion or an earthquake or whatever right so it's like well okay maybe you can't run from an earthquake but but anyway <laughs> the, the point is there's a reason why we're scared of really loud sudden noises because they often indicate danger so there are certain kinds of evolutionary intuitions we have that are they're pretty reliable and generally you should err on the side of following them